Lockdown Science. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM with me, Ellie. And me, Andrew. This show is what happens when two biologists self-isolate together and are trying to do something with their spare time other than meticulously documenting the behaviour of their cat. But we're not exactly isolating anymore, are we? Well, you're isolating more than I am. I'm, I've gone back to the lab. Big news since oh, the last show. yeah. So I'm still stuck at home all alone now. You say stuck at home. I mean, you're drinking good coffee. Yeah. You're... Cuddling the cat when I get bored. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't sound too bad. Whereas I'm in the lab, wrist deep in mouse carcasses. Lovely. I should probably explain that one. Um, I do work on a particular type of beetle which eats dead mice. I'm not just kind of messed up. Yeah, although, you know, she secretly enjoys it. I do, I do, you know what I didn't fully anticipate was how much I would not be used to the smell by the time. Yeah, you kind of you kind of desensitised to it and now it's like going in fresh. It smells about as bad as you would imagine a dead mouse to smell once mm. it's been left out for a few days. Or a room full of dead mice, which have all been left out for a few days. Exactly, which is even better, which actually disturbingly I'd kind of got used to, whereas post-lockdown, not used to it anymore. No. Kind of suffering. Yeah. But anyway, that's science. Don't we love science? Absolutely. So we're not exactly locked down like we were before, but things are still weird. There are lots of lockdown-esque rules and importantly the virus hasn't gone away so the news is still full of covid related stories which means that we're still here with this show to pick out some of the non-covid related science news that hasn't got enough of an airing science of the week First up, we have our Science of the Week quiz, where I usually test Andrew on his knowledge of science that has hit the press in the last week or so. Except it's been just over a month since our last show, so I actually have a big backlog to draw on from this week. Oh, crikey, this is going to make it even harder. Yeah. You mean I've got to remember what happened more than a week ago? I mean, you're not usually very good at a week. so yeah, I, fair. Yeah, yeah fair. I, like, how are you feeling about your science knowledge from the last month? Um, I mean, maybe you've picked the bigger stories, so I'm more likely to have heard them. Everything's a big story in science. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> that was my uh, public outreach voice there. <laughs> Don't we love science? Right. Well, you know what? Let's just let's just go ahead, and we'll see what kind of absolute disaster this is. Yep. Number one, for what percentage of its time flying does an Andean condor flap its wings? Ooh, um, I mean, it's not going to be very much because they're big birds and they'll spend a lot of time just gliding around on thermals, mm. using them to get up in the air and then going between them. Interesting. And so they're going to flap not very much at all. Like yeah. really, really Could you put a much. figure on not very much? 1%. Have you read this? No, I haven't actually. Oh, you no. It's actually one percent. It's actually one percent of the time. It's just, uh, just Birder's intuition that nailed is. it. Absolutely nailed it. Yep. Yeah. So Williams et al. published a paper in PNAS this week, and it found that the Andean condor only flaps one percent of the time that it flies, and seventy-five percent of the flapping was during takeoff. So they monitored this by putting flight recorders on birds that could track every single wing beat. And they found that one bird flew 172 kilometres over five hours with no flapping. Yeah, that's incredible, Mad, isn't it? absolutely yeah. mad. That's what happens when you have enormous wings. 
Exactly. Well, so Andean condors are the biggest extant soaring bird. And like you said, they mostly use updrafts of hot air, which we call thermals, and that keeps them soaring. So although the Andean condor is the largest extant soaring bird, do you know the weight of what scientists think is the largest soaring bird of all time? Do you have the weight of an Andean condor for scale? (laughs) So apparently the Andean condor is on average just over 11 kilograms. Okay. Yeah, that's quite important. That's a bit less than I thought it might have been. So I'm going to go with it's going to be at least 50% bigger than that. So... 16 kilos 18 kilos uh nowhere near high enough really yeah so the honor goes to argentavis magnificens oh love that latin name strong name game. strong name game which was about 72 kilograms what yeah and it's thought that its huge size meant that it couldn't sustain flapping flight so it would have had to be almost entirely dependent on soaring thermals so it couldn't land on the ground then presumably it had to like jump off a cliff i mean presumably and just saw yeah we need to look into this more where was that native to i don't know space like it's just it's like a bird from hell i'm not sure <laughs> what did it eat i mean everything presumably i have no idea i think we need to look into this but 72 kilograms i mean that's like the same weight as me yeah that's insane imagine if i had wings oh that would be cool yeah yeah and to be fair i do eat everything yeah so people who say that it's not possible for us to fly maybe icarus was right (laughs) maybe i mean so many biological but i'm not going to start on that one but sure (laughs) number two what innovation is the johnny walker brand of whiskey in the process of making that will make it more environmentally friendly Oh, this has got to be that they're working out a way of doing it without burning peat. It's actually not. Although that would be very environmentally friendly. Oh, surely the burning of huge areas of peat to create whiskey was probably their biggest environmental impact, no? I mean, yes, but also probably one of the harder ones to approach. This one's, I guess, a little bit less important than that, but still pretty cool. They will soon be making it available in paper bottles. Paper bottles, I hear you cry. Okay. Won't that leak? Is that what you're thinking? I <laughs> wasn't what I was thinking. You were thinking, I was, what about the peat? I was thinking, what about the peat? Yeah. Okay, well, just humour me now. Okay. Um, I think we're humouring them, really. Okay, we're humouring them. I, I still thought this was pretty cool, right? So we're not talking like printer paper here. The bottles will be made from pressurised pulp that's then cured in a microwave. And whilst cardboard cartons already exist, they usually contain a layer of plastic inside them to stop them from leaking, which these whiskey bottles won't. Mm. So usually whiskey bottles are made from glass, which people tend to be kind of less bothered about than plastic bottles. But while glass can be recycled, it takes a huge amount of energy to melt it down to a point where it can be recycled into a new product. And that's not very environmentally friendly. I mean, knew there's paint, but there we go. So the idea with these paper bottles is that they'll be easily recyclable and more environmentally friendly to recycle than glass. Yeah. And it's something which all other drinks manufacturers could then eventually take up. And if it actually spread, then that would have quite a big impact. Yeah. So maybe if we kind of don't think about the peat right now and think as an innovation, pretty good. Yeah. I would ask if you're excited to try this, but you hate whiskey. So yeah, you're probably not Not, practically going to enjoy it. Not fast. Number three. What have the closest ever photos of the sun revealed on its surface? Don't say aliens. Don't say aliens. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, 
more sunspots? I, I, I don't know what else could be there. That's really. not a terrible guess, but they're mini flares, which are being dubbed campfires, which is quite cute. Mm. The European Space Agency's Solar Orbiter probe was launched in February and has now sent back photos taken from 77 million kilometres away from the surface of the sun. Now, this is inside the orbit of Venus. Mm. Which is very cool. For context, the Earth is on average about 149 million kilometres from the sun. So that's pretty darn close. Yep. Now, this is the closest that photos of the sun have ever been taken. And one new thing that the photos have illuminated are these mini... Ah, sun- illuminated. Thanks. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was wondering if you see that. Illuminated are these mini sun flares. We hear about sunflowers sometimes in the media. They're basically huge explosions of energy from the sun which release radiation into space that can sometimes even disrupt our radio communications. But these mini flares are millionths of the size of the giant flares. David Bergmans, the principal investigator on the probe's extreme ultraviolet imager, very cool name, said that the smallest flares they found are about 800 kilometres squared. So that's the size of some European countries. Like, that's really tiny. Wow. When you compare it to the size of the sun, it's yeah. mad. Except- but also, like, still the size of some European countries. I mean, like, yes. That's not- both big and small at the same time. Is your head just exploding? Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, but when you compare it to the size of the sun, it's mad. But so how big are the big solar flares? I mean, millions like of times bigger than the size of a continent? They're very, the size very of the not- world? They can disrupt communications on Earth. Well, I know, but, like... I just think of that because there's a lot of energy rather than like the surface area over which it's being generated. They're chunky boys. What can I say? Excitingly, the orbiter will be getting even closer to the sun, just 43 million kilometres away from the surface, which is within the orbit of Mercury. So I know that 43 million kilometres doesn't sound super close, but I get burnt wearing Factor 50 on a slightly bright day in the UK. So to me, that's impressive. Yeah, that'd be that'd be some pretty rapid sunburn at that distance. But anyway, I thought it was really exciting. And I also thought it was very cute they're being dubbed campfires when they're yeah, actually the size of countries. It's like the scouts have gone to the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Number four. For the first time in nearly 30 years, an expansion has been issued to a UK area of outstanding natural beauty. For half a point, which county is it in? And for a full point, what is the area of outstanding natural beauty in question? Ooh. Um, Where do you think is naturally beautiful and possibly getting even bigger well, I naturally could, beautiful? I, I don't know. Yorkshire? No. I mean, I'm sure the people of Yorkshire would be very happy to hear you say that, but no. A bit closer than Yorkshire. Um, I think closer here. Oh. Ish. Norfolk? The other one. Suffolk? Yeah, I'm not giving you that. That's that's not. It's the Suffolk Coast and Heaths area of outstanding natural beauty, which has been expanded by 38 kilometres squared. The extension includes the Stour Estuary and a couple of important tributaries. The areas included consist of woodland, mudflats and salt marsh and are of international importance for wildfowl and wading birds. But this is a particularly big deal because it's the first time that an area of outstanding natural beauty in England has been extended since 1991. Wow. Yeah. I was kind of surprised. Yeah. That's like as long as we've been alive. Well, it's longer than you've been alive. Well, you know what what actually bothers me about this is the fact that when I read about this in the press, I keep seeing this headline being described as, for the first time in nearly 30 years, and I was born in 1992, the last one was 1991, and now I feel like the media is trying to imply that I'm nearly 30, and I'm feeling very attacked by this. (laughs) I'm not. I'm 28. I'm miles off 30. Yeah, so far. Please, stop it. (laughs) Anyway, it's appropriate that it's been extended now because 2020 is the 50th anniversary of the area being made in AONB. Number five. 
What rare bird spotted this week roosting in the Peak District has been getting bird watchers all a flutter? The bearded vulture. The bearded vulture. Is this the only one of these that you've actually known? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, birds. <laughs> it is the bearded. Uh, to be fair, the first one was birds as well. Yeah, exactly. But I did get it right. Yes. It is. It's a bearded vulture. For anyone that follows anyone from the birding community on Twitter, this news has been inescapable. People are very excited, and rightly so. This... I think it's only the second one ever in the UK. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. It's not. A, it's not a bird we usually see around here. So people are excited. It was last seen in the UK in 2016. And even if you're not into birds, this one is cool looking. So bearded vultures are one of the largest birds in Europe. And this one is just a young one, but its wingspan is nearly three metres. Mad. It's a big boy. So Tim Birch from the Derbyshire Wildlife Trust reports that it probably originated from the Alps or the Pyrenees and that it's normal for young birds to explore, but it's unusual for it to cross a body of water like the English Channel. And that's why we just don't see them very much. Are you excited about the bearded vulture? Are you tempted to drive to the Peak District? I mean, a little bit, I suppose, if it's going to stick around. Yeah. Um, I'm not really... I don't really engage with twitching. No. But, I mean, that would be pretty cool to see. We'll see. We'll see how long it sticks around for. Okay, well, at the end of that round, you got a grand total of... Drum roll, please. Two out of five. It's all right. It's all right. Although quite, I got the bird ones. I was going to say it was quite funny. So you, got the, you got the two bird ones. Yeah. You know nothing about space or whiskey, but my gosh, do you know your birds? Journal Club. Next up, we're going to share with you a couple of our favourite papers. What have you got this week? Well, if I asked you how to calculate a dog's age, what would you say? Uh, don't saw it in half and count the rings like you would with a tree. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I feel like I'm not going to get the answer I want from um, you. Look at its teeth. No. Oh. <laughs> you must be one of the only people who doesn't know this. So generally what people say is you just take its age and you times it by seven and that's an approach. Oh, <laughs> I thought you meant for a dog that you didn't know the age of. No, like, no. Like, that doesn't make no. I mean, a dog's age is how long it's been on the planet. No, but you it's, have to translate it into human years. Otherwise, how can we empathise with it? You know, we look at a really I, old dog and go, oh, he's like a 90-year-old. That's always struck me as a bit pointless. <laughs> yeah, but it's cute. I thought, I thought you meant, I genuinely, genuinely thought you meant, like, a dog gets brought into a rescue centre and they're looking to rehome it and the potential people who want to rehome it want to know roughly how old it is and someone had calculated a clever new way of working out when a dog, how old a dog was, even if you had no... No, I'm talking about something far more frivolous than uh, that. Thank okay. you very much. Okay. Okay, right. so standard is you multiply it by seven. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I would have done. That's what pretty much everyone else would have done. But scientists have shown us the error of our ways. So at the start of this month, Wang et al. published a paper in Cell Systems titled Quantitative Translation of Dog-to-Human Aging by Conserved Remodeling of the DNA Methadone. Now, that sounds like a complicated mouthful. Yeah. So I'm going to break it down for you because, let's be honest, most of us are like, okay, cool, but how old is my dog? I was a human. <laughs> or at least I am. Apparently you're not, but whatever. Now, traditionally, we were told that a good rule of thumb is just to multiply your dog's age by seven, and that would give a rough estimate 
as to what the equivalent would be in human years in terms of physiological ageing. But these researchers looked at certain molecules called methyl groups and how they accumulate in both the human and the Labrador genome over a lifetime to give a more accurate comparison of the rates of physiological ageing in dogs and humans. Now, they looked at around 100 dogs from puppies to 16-year-olds. So it's a good sample size and a full range of ages. I mean, 16 is ancient for a pedigree lab. How many different breeds did they look at? Just Labradors, just labs, for now, for now. Okay. Yeah, 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 start small. And they actually found that puppies age much more rapidly. That is that they accumulate methyl groups much more rapidly than human babies do. So a one-year-old dog is actually more equivalent to a 30-year-old human. However, dog ageing then slows down. So a four-year-old dog is equivalent to a 54-year-old human. Weird, right? So basically, dog ageing, or at least, okay, Labrador ageing, isn't linear to human years. Mm. So they even have a handy little formula so you can calculate your dog's age, but it is a bit trickier than times seven. It's 16 times the natural log of the dog's age plus 31 equals the human age. <laughs> I, I do it in my head all the time, yeah, every yeah. time I meet a dog. Obviously. Yeah. But that, no, that's actually quite interesting, though. Like, differences in rates of ageing between species yeah. is, is actually quite cool. I love how shocked you are that I brought something genuinely interesting well, to the table. I, no, not, 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 that, not that you brought something genuinely interesting. Just, it didn't start well when I thought it was just a new equation for calculating, you know how old your doggo was in human years. That's how I roll. I don't start well, but I pull it out of my bag. (laughs) Okay, so one thing to note is that this uses the definition of ageing as essentially the age of the cells in a body. But there are other aspects of ageing, like milestones marked by different aspects of learning or levels of hormones. So although a one-year-old puppy's cells have aged like a 30-year-old human, it doesn't mean it has the equivalent level of, I guess, behavioural maturity it'll probably still act like a bouncy puppy. Another thing I like about this study is that when you look at it, you realise that this research wasn't done on sad lab dogs, because that would upset me. They used samples from pet dogs. And I can confirm that they were all very good boys and girls. Yeah. Anyway, seeing as I've been mocked for that, what kind of wisdom do you bring to the table? Well, you know when you're at the zoo and you're watching a keeper feeding the penguins? Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen the keeper fall victim to the penguin's excrement? No. Well, it happens. You know, it's a, it's a kind of occupational hazard of being a zookeeper. So if if you were hypothetically to observe this unfortunate event, would you, as a scientist, as you watch this drama unfold, observe the look of horror and embarrassment on the keeper's face and think, I've got a fantastic idea for some applied science, which is definitely the finest practical contribution that all of my skills as a mathematician can make to society. Yes, I think I would definitely do that. Yeah, well, it's too late because I'm sorry to tell you that you've been scooped. Oh, no. (laughs) I give you this week's paper, Projectile Trajectory of Penguins' Feces and Rectal Pressure Revisited by Tajima and Fujisawa. Oh, I understood all those words, but together they make very little sense. Yeah, well... I feel like it has to be said that after the initial excitement of all the obvious words in that title, I feel like the slow burner is the last one. Previous works have also investigated the projectile trajectory of penguins' feces and rectal pressure. Yeah, revisited. Revisited, exactly. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Much like our discovery a few weeks back that the utility of parachutes in saving lives is an ongoing topic of debate in the scientific literature, it turns out that the fluid dynamics of penguin poo are a hot topic. 
I mean, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Actually, I hope that there's a follow-up study here to investigate for how long a penguin's poo actually remains a hot topic after expulsion <laughs> and how that varies with the ambient temperature and the temperature of its final resting substrate. Oh, uh, the show's gone down the toilet. Uh, do, te- do tell me more. In 2003, Mayor Rocho and Gal published a seminal work entitled Precious Produced When Penguins Poo. Calculations on avian defecation. In it, they calculate the considerable pressure required by chinstrap and the daily penguins to propel their feces in an impressive 40 centimetres along the ground. That is very impressive. Yeah, so that was, they measured how they, they used photos to look and to look at how far from the nest these penguins could get their poo, and it was about 40 centimetres. So the answer, it turns out, depends in part on the diameter of the penguin's rectum which is apparently estimated to be 8 millimetres for these species. And that's the diameter at the moment of firing, because oh, they, they expand a little bit as, as the poo's on the way out. But it also depends very strongly on the viscosity of the poo. So from an 8 millimetre rectum, positioned 20 centimetres above the ground, watery material must be expelled at 10 kilopascals of pressure to reach 40 centimetres. But higher viscosity material, similar to olive oil, oh, requires God. 60 kilopascals of pressure. Please, you're going to make me never eat olive oil again. So this is apparently higher than normal systolic pressure in a human aorta, but lower than the pressure in a car tyre. But you know what? It's interesting, but I feel like I'm lacking context. (laughs) I'm lacking lacking real-world application. It's Mm -hmm. good, but it's not really good. I mean, it's pretty good. It is pretty good. Um, oh wait, but, can I just ask, how do they know the diameter of a firing anus? Oh, that's a really good question. They used photos... As they put, I can't remember how they put it. It was something along the lines of spot-on photos, where they took photos of a penguin at the moment that it pooed, and then later <laughs> measured the diameter of the rectum like in the photo. Yeah. So as someone who's measured many photos of eggs on digital software, I feel like I had not such a bad deal now. Yeah, I feel like this might have been when they were looking through their holiday snaps. <laughs> what, the holiday snaps of penguin anuses? Yeah, from the you know trip to Antarctica. They do comment in the discussion that there's further work to be done that would require another trip to Antarctica. Oh, sneaky. Yeah, very cunning. Anyway, yeah, carry on. Enter Tajima and Fujisawa. They bring a penguin's metric poo pile more calculations to this feces-strewn table. <laughs> The height, h, of an object on which a penguin could stand. The initial velocity, v, of the expulsion. The angle of release, theta, above the horizontal that a penguin may be able to achieve. The modelled contribution of the shape of the penguin's stomach and its internal pressure to the rectal pressure generated. Newton's equation of motion for the faeces after the shoot. And the projectile effects of viscous air resistance on the projectile motion. That all sounds very physics-y. It's very detailed. Mm. There are 29 equations in this paper. 29. I don't want to poop on their work, but Mayor Rocho and Gal only had five. <laughs> okay. okay so, yeah, this is this has, you know, stepped it up a gear. So what does all this lead to? Well, the key finding of the paper is that the upper bound of the horizontal distance that a penguin, with an 8mm rectum, stood on a 2 metre high rock, shooting its faeces at an angle of 16.9 degrees, could achieve, is 1.34 metres. Wow, that's like a weapon. Yeah, it's like a weapon, isn't it? So if you're a keeper in a zoo feeding the penguins, you've got to be at least 1.34 metres away from any penguin on a rock. Does this say something about us as people that you think about it from the keeper's point of view? And I'm thinking, 
If I were a penguin, think how many people I could attack with my poop. Oh, oh, I've, you've had that thought. Just, just right, hold, exactly hold that thought. Think. Hold that thought. So, the true distance they demonstrate must be less than this one point three four meters, because air resistance will act to slow the poo in mid-flight, and more viscous poos will fly slower. Or as they put it, the viscosity of faeces itself may shorten the flying distance due to the energy dissipation originating from the internal friction. I bet you never thought you'd get to discuss the internal friction of viscous penguin faeces on CAMFM, did you? (laughs) I mean, I always hoped I wouldn't, but there we go. Well, you know, it's another dream (laughs) realised. So they then go on to discuss the impact of the penguin shape, assumed to be a cylindrical tank, which I think is rather excellent. (laughs) Well, it's sort of the rough rough shape of a penguin. You know, mathematicians and physicists love to boil things down into, you know, assumed shapes. A sphere in a vacuum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the penguin shape, the flowing time inside the intestine, and also the viscosity of the faeces, again, on the rectal pressure generated at the moment of expulsion. Surprisingly... It's higher than the previous authors suggested. Oh. But better than that, Tajima and Fujisawa illustrate for us, the casual reader, the magnitude of this pressure in terms that we can all understand. Oh, this is what I'm here for. This is what you're here for. We demonstrate how far a liquid-like object blasted off from a human with severe stomach ache would fly if his or her rectal pressure was a strong as the penguins. Oh, I don't like where it's going. If the liquid is horizontally launched from the hip at a height of 0.85 metres, the flying distance can be estimated as 3.13 metres. <laughs> he or she should not use usual restrooms. <laughs> One can easily understand the incredible power of the penguin's rectum in this way. I just have no words. I don't like, usually I have something to say and I just have, I have no words. Okay, and we should do a shout out to the listener who sent this to you. Yeah. And by listener, I mean friend, supervisee. Yeah, Matt Lewis, once Matt again, Lewis. Uh, has delivered another gem. So if people want to see this paper, I'm going to put a link to it when I tweet about the show. Have a look out for that. Isolation Recommendations. So, we like to round off each show with a few of our science-related isolation tips. What have you got? Well, I discovered this week, again from a colleague, that the peregrines in Cambridge that nest on on all the churches and tall buildings have got their own Twitter account. Of course they have. At Cam Peregrines. Um, So I actually haven't had time to check this out yet, but I intend to. I'm hoping it's going to be full of wholesome and delightful pictures of peregrines feeding their chick. I love the peregrines in Cambridge because they're so unexpected. Yeah, they're really cool, aren't they? And they're just amazing birds. One time a professor from the department brought in a headless snipe, which had been nobbled by a peregrine and found in one of the college grounds. And his point of bringing it around was saying, look how beautiful this snipe's feathers are. But also, look at the power of the peregrine. Yeah. Absolutely mad. And also, look at what flies over cities in the middle of the night when you're not, Mm. when, you know, no one's looking. Yeah. It's quite cool because loads of of birds migrate at night because then it's harder for birds of prey to see them. But the interesting thing is that what peregrines have learned to do is when they're in cities, there's lights all through the night that are going upwards into the sky and they illuminate the birds' bellies as they fly over overhead. So peregrines normally hunt from above and they stoop down and attack their prey. They kind of come out of the sun so the prey can't see them coming. But at night, they just come up. From oh. from the dark city and take them from below. Terrifying. Yeah, I'm glad pretty... I'm not a snipe or yeah. a pigeon. 
What's your recommendation? Well, so this week I'm going to recommend one of my new favourite Instagram finds. Ooh. Yeah, not doing Twitter this week. Branching out the socials. I know. It's a profile called at science.uncovered and it's run by Dr. Esther Odekunle, who is an antibody engineer. So I've followed Esther on Twitter for some time, but only recently found her Instagram. She posts really important information about racism and science and in healthcare and some home truths about the difficulties of STEM careers. But she also posts cool science news, some stuff about her journey into science, and also dancing science-themed TikToks. So yeah, she's great. And you can find her on Instagram at science.uncovered. I'm really glad that lockdown never drove us to trying out TikTok. Dr. Esther is great at it, but we would not be. No, no. I think I think podcasting is about as far as we should go into... Yeah, we have faces for radio. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to send us your thoughts or recommendations for cool science we should look into ready for next week's show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore Bladen. And I'm at Eleanor underscore Bladen. Get in touch, say hi, send us funny papers, let us know whether you have any particularly good science-themed face masks. Oh yeah, there have been some some of those coming out. There's some great ones, yeah. yeah, so let us know. Basically, we'd love to hear from you. There's really only so much talking we can do to each other, so we'd like to chat to you instead. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure you tune in in two weeks' time at 7pm for another episode of Lockdown Science on CAMFM. FM.